epistle lesson this morning is found at the end of Romans 9, beginning in verse 30, and read through chapter 10, verse 21. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come weak, poor, and needy. We know the fragility of all things in this life. We also know our need to be taught by you. And so teach us your way. Lead us in your truth. And we ask this morning, God, that you will speak for your servants who are listening. Amen. Last week, we began our climb into Romans 9 through 11, 
And we liken these chapters to the face of the Eiger, the iconic mountain in Switzerland there in the Lauterbrunnen Valley, and that many have arrived and turned away, seeing its beauty but not wanting to climb it or scale it. In order not to be a chicken, I can't just skip over into chapter 12. And so maybe at peril to ourselves, here we are, the sharp face of the Eiger. Chapter 9, we tackled most of that material last week. This week is somewhat of a break. This is our camp, you could say, halfway up the face, and then we will hit the sharp peak next week in chapter 11. So prepare yourselves. But this week, Paul is addressing the issue of why so many of Israel, of his contemporaries, who were ardent and faithful Jewish believers, were not entrusting themselves to Jesus. And so it is important for us to understand here that he puts the emphasis upon Israel's responsibility to believe all that they had heard and had been given to them. And he says that they're ignorant of the purposes of God. And so we'll be working through this material focused upon chapter 10, especially the early verses of that. And then we will come back and finish this off next week in chapter 11. No doubt the name is familiar to you, Edward Snowden. He's infamous an IT consultant for the NSA and for the CIA who leaked thousands of classified government documents to journalists working for major international newspapers. He was charged with violating the Espionage Act and also for selling government property. He's considered by most in our country to be a traitor But yet there are some, a minority, who consider him to be something of a prophet, something of a patriot, one who is more loyal to this country than many others. Snowden himself has spoken out about these things, and he claims that he was motivated by the ideals and values that animate American culture to do what he did, that this is why he did it. There's something critical for us to recognize about Snowden's radicalization and then his subsequent betrayal, that he believes that he was acting in the interest of the United States with what he did. He considers himself to be a loyalist to the well-being of American society. He does consider himself a patriot. And as we arrive here in chapter 10, as we're attempting to understand exactly what's going on here with Israel's failure to believe in Jesus, it's helpful for us to see that there's something similar that applies to Israel. See, in Israel's own perception, that is, Paul's contemporaries who were not believing in Jesus, they were actually zealous for God. This is how they saw themselves. And Paul actually affirms it. He says they have a zeal for God. They were the heirs of the promises. They had received all the covenants of God. They had been circumcised. They had been given the temple. All the institutions were theirs. They were the faithful ones who were attempting to uphold the Mosaic law in the Mediterranean world. Paul affirms in verse 2 that they were indeed zealous for God. But then he turns and explains something important. But their zeal was not according to knowledge. That zeal was misdirected. And he ends up saying that they were ignorant of God's righteousness and that they failed to submit themselves to that righteousness. So yes, they perceived themselves to be loyalists, 
to be on God's side. But Paul very disturbingly and significantly and importantly for you and for me says that they're ignorant of the true and living God and his purposes in the world and what he's doing. And so there's a very haunting lesson for us as we arrive here in chapter 10. Because what we see here is that we can be at the very center of God's purposes for the world. We can be connected to those promises. We can be associated with the institutions through which those promises take life. We can have a zeal for his name. We can claim to know him. We can claim to be loyalist. And yet what we find out here is that we can be completely ignorant of him. That that label can apply to us as well. And so it's critical for us this morning to ask and answer one really simple question. How did it happen? How did it happen to Israel? And more significantly, how can it happen to us? There's two things that we see on the way to that. First, in answering that question, how it happened, what we find is that it's very possible to reorient the means of righteousness. Now, as Paul begins in verse 30 and 31, he observes that in the fledgling young church in the first century, that Gentiles were attaining a righteous status before God. That is, they were being counted righteous because of their faith in Jesus, but then many Israelites were not attaining that same status. And so in verse 32, he then asked the question, why? And then he's going to answer, if you'll follow with me there. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And friends, this is the profound answer as to one of the things that was going wrong in Israel is that they were not pursuing righteousness according to faith in Jesus, but rather they were pursuing righteousness according to their own efforts and their own works. Rather than receiving a righteous status from God that's freely assigned because of what Christ has done on our behalf, they attempted to earn that righteousness, to have something in which they could boast, to have something in which they could then turn and put a claim on God. They wanted God to answer to them because of their obedience. But Paul's argument throughout Romans has been simple. If you remember back to chapter four, he explains that this is never the way that salvation was designed to work in the Old Testament or in the New. That Abraham, the head of the Israelite family, that his salvation was completely by grace. He received a promise from God that God would be his God and the God of his children and his children's children, that he would receive the land and that they would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And we're told in Genesis 15 that he went out under the stars and he believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And so, yes, Israel in the Old Testament, they too were justified by faith. This has been Paul's argument all along. But now something has happened, that there's been a theological turn where rather than seeing that right standing with God is a result of faith 
it's now being seen that right standing with God is based on our works, our efforts. And so what exactly happened? It's an important question to answer, just that historical curiosity. How did Israel, who had received all this revelation from God, how were they so misdirected and misguided? Obviously, if you're familiar with any parts of the story, especially of the Old Testament, you know the ups and downs of Israel's relationship with God. As his people, they were, of course, to obey him. But they weren't to obey him in order to gain anything from him. They were to walk in the precepts of the Mosaic law, but they were to do so as a response of gratitude to the overwhelming grace of God. Just remember and reflect on where the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the statement of grace. And that grace comes singularly from God to them. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. The commandments were never about earning or deserving or somehow gaining God's love as if we could climb up into heaven and buy all that ourselves and put a claim on God. No, obedience was always about gratitude. But obviously, as Israel went through all of its different motions and through its different disobedience, we find parts of the story where they were completely ignorant of God and had nothing to do with him and actually were building other shrines to God's in God's temple. And so he was being completely ostracized. And it was at that point in Israel's history that reform movements crept in. They were important reform movements. What they wanted to do was make Israel's God great again. They wanted to make Israel great again by restoring her religion and her purity. They were groups that you're perhaps familiar with from the Bible. The Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots. And what they longed for was for Israel to be faithful to the true God again. And so what they all focused on was the Mosaic law and what it meant to keep it. And they were particularly focused upon Israel's obedience to the commandments. And so it was during this time that something called the oral Torah, the oral law was developed. And what this was was simply like a commentary written on the commandments of the Old Testament. And those, that commentary was extremely prescriptive and meticulous. And so one commandment would be taken. And then different rules were set up as to how you were to follow that commandment. You find Jesus interacting with this in his Sermon on the Mount. They wanted to maximize the commandments. And they were also ironically marginalizing them. But they were very focused upon your obedience to what God had said to do. And so what happened was that suddenly Israel was so focused upon the commandments of God that they had, in essence, forgotten the covenant of God, the grace of God. And focus began to shift on being counted righteous with God, not by faith, but because of what they did. Righteousness became something that was based on obedience, based on works of the law, the things that we, that we do. And the incredible error is that they were cherishing the illusion that they could present themselves to God, that they could be loyal enough to him, that they could put a claim on God, that God would have to count them righteous. 
that they could demand that God justify them because they had obeyed him. And many people perhaps would look at that and say, well, you know, but bless their hearts, they were trying their best. They were trying to love God. But Paul's not having that. And this is very significant and important for us to note that he doesn't just go, well, this is just a little misdirected religious zeal, you know, and we can put up with that because at least they're not out there doing this, okay? No, what he says is that those misdirected, somewhat that seem good intentions, he says that that's informed by ignorance and it's the failure to submit to God. Follow with me in verse three. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And so friends, when we try to do this, when we try to base our righteousness on works, it's offensive to God. It's the height of human pride and arrogance to think that we can put a claim on God. And so what Paul is saying is that beneath Israel's meticulous and dedicated obedience is that there was an obstinate, hard-headed disobedience because it's the refusal to allow grace to be grace. It's the refusal to allow grace to be a gift that comes to us. It's the refusal of saying that salvation is just simply something received and not earned. And ultimately it's the refusal to allow God's glory to reign supreme in salvation. And so friends, none of you are really in danger, I don't believe, of taking the prescriptions of the Old Testament law and attempting to make yourself right with God by obeying all 600 or 700 of them. I don't think that's particularly tempting to you. But what is tempting to you and what can be tempting for me and what has been tempting for Christians throughout the ages is that there are subtle ways that we do this where we reorient the means that were counted righteous with God. We do this in very subtle ways and it's important to understand how it happens. You see, because we too are not free from our reform movements. There are particular moments where we want to see reform and change and we want to see the people of God, just like the Pharisees did. They want to see the people of God be more loyal to him and to take him more seriously. And so in efforts to speak against moral wrongs, and then sometimes there's efforts to help people who are just simply in need of instruction and, and aid. And so we can focus upon teaching and then sometimes there's efforts to speak against social injustice, important things that are going wrong. All these are good and biblical things. But what often happens when we engage in that desire for reform is that our focus narrows down and it shifts and the center moves. And what we begin to focus on is upon this narrow set of issues of reform and our agenda shrinks, we begin to focus on our performance and our product. We begin to focus upon our achievements and our accolades. 
We begin to focus upon ourselves. And so, yes, we're upholding maybe things that are in the Bible. But in all the focus upon the things of humans, we lose the central focus upon the free grace of God that comes to faith. It's because of this that Israel was missing the grace of God. And it's because of this that we too can miss it. Paul describes us as a hardness of heart and obstinance and disobedience. And so friends, one of the highest commitments that we can hold as a church is to allow the grace of God to remain free for the things of first importance, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and that salvation that comes to us by faith in him, to allow that to remain supreme. That that is the thing of chief importance and of all the other things that the church is bound to say, things that we need to emphasize, things that we need to teach, that they don't rise to this and they certainly don't displace it. And that any minister, any teacher, anyone who inhabits the office of pastor, if they begin to turn from this, that they're not worthy of that office. That we do not have the freedom, nor the privilege, nor the permission from God to reorient the means of righteousness. And we have to pay attention to that by what we emphasize and how we emphasize it and to what degree we emphasize it. And we always want to make sure and attend to the fact that in our churches, that we're not reorienting that means of righteousness. It's the first problem that Israel was experiencing and one that we still know today. But there was a second problem that Paul identifies. See, because it's not only that the means of righteousness was being reordered, they were turning it from faith to works, but there was also a neglect of the revelation of God's righteousness that had taken place. Back to verses three and four. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, that is their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, if you were with us all the way back to Romans 1, you'll remember that we spoke about righteousness and how this language is used in the epistle to the Romans and how it's used broader, especially in the Old Testament, in the books of Psalms and Isaiah. And that righteousness is an important word and one that we have to pay attention to. Because here Paul is speaking of two kinds of righteousness. A righteousness that belongs to humans. And then he speaks of God's righteousness. That's something that belongs to God. It's something of his character. And then in the Bible we find that it's from his character as the righteous one. That God engages in a certain activity. And that activity is that God enters into the work of salvation, accomplishing it for his people. And so what Paul is charging Israel with here is that they were ignorant of what God was doing to bring about his saving deliverances for all the world. That promise to Abraham that he was going to bless the nations, that that was happening Note what he says about Jesus, that Jesus is the end of the law. This doesn't mean that Jesus just throws away the law. No, in fact, Jesus says quite the opposite in Matthew 5. 
But what it does mean is that Jesus is the goal, or Jesus is the fulfillment, or Jesus is the climax of the law. He's the substance of it. He doesn't throw it away, but rather he's the meaning of everything the law was always pointing to. Because the law is not just commandments. The law is promises. The law has ceremonies, and the law has stipulations in it. And all of that points to Jesus. The ceremonies were shadows that were pointing to Jesus. The commandments reveal our unworthiness and our unfaithfulness, and those then point us to Jesus because we can't keep them. Paul is arguing that it's to faith in Jesus that the law points us. And so what was happening in Israel is that they were missing the point. They had taken one fraction of God's revelation, the commandments, and were so focused on it that they were missing the forest for the tree. They were so dialed in on obedience, they were missing what the law was always to direct them to, the Redeemer, the Mediator, the one who by faith gave them right standing with God. And so in this passage, Paul then quotes from Deuteronomy 30. If you look in verses 6 through 8, you'll find that quotation, and many people will read it and scratch their heads, and I have to confess that I'm somewhat with you. It's a hard quotation from the Old Testament, but it's helpful to recognize this, that Deuteronomy 30 was a promise spoken to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. And the promise was, look, when you've broken all this and you've walked far off and wandered away, I, God, am going to do something to renew my covenant with you. And I'm going to write my laws upon your heart. And I'm going to renew you and forgive your sins. It was a promise of future restoration. And so why is Paul quoting Deuteronomy 30 here? And then why is he pointing to Jesus? Because what he is saying is that that promise has arrived. That promise has been realized. That day is not something future. That that day is here. That Jesus has come and that good news has been preached. And that it's not far off. Rather, it's near you. It's in your mouth. And it's in your heart. That that future work of God has been realized in Jesus. The great renewal the climax of the whole story, what it's all about has arrived. And Paul was concerned that Israel, despite all their knowledge of God's revelation, despite all their familiarity with the law, despite their zeal for God, that they were completely ignorant of the broader purposes of God. We sometimes look at those historical characters and we think of how stupid they were. We think, how couldn't they get it? The people who saw the miracles, how couldn't they believe? But friends, isn't it the same with us? And can't you look at your own hardness of heart and say how stupid I am, ignorant I am? As a kid, I remember growing up in Sunday school, every week, learning Bible stories. I was taught Bible stories from the Old Testament, marching through the book of Genesis and then through Exodus. And then we would arrive in the Gospels at certain times of the year, and I learned more Bible stories about the healing miracles and the feeding miracles and all these things. And so I stored up this knowledge of all these stories, 
But that's exactly what they were. They were just these isolated concrete blocks of information. And what I was lacking, what I was not perceiving and understanding, I'm sure my Sunday school teachers were doing better, but it was not connecting. No one was explaining the reason, the purpose, the thing that united all this together. And this is what Paul is saying Israel was missing. And this is what we can still so easily miss today. That Jesus is the end and the purpose. He's the goal and the fulfillment. That everything in all of Scripture points to him. And that it is all about him. And so we're not to decenter him or to remove him. That the salvation that God proclaims, the revelation of the righteousness of God, is found in him. And so, friends, we keep Christ preeminent. We keep him central because he's the end of God's purposes in the world. And so we can distort the grace of God by reorienting the means of righteousness. And we can distort that grace by neglecting the revelation of that righteousness that's found in Jesus. And we in the church, like Israel, have found many ways to make a hash of it and to do it. But the point that Paul is driving to, as he laments and as he grieves Israelite hardness, and perhaps today as he would lament and grieve our own hardness, is that God, in revealing his righteousness in Jesus, that what God has done is that he has allowed all, Jew and Gentile, to call upon him and to enter into his house, to be part of his family, to be declared righteous, to be freed from the weight of our sins. And this is the conclusion he draws in verses 10 and 13, that God's not making distinctions based on race or based upon history and connection with Old Testament Israel. But now, forgiveness is free for all, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And friends, this is your privilege to call on the name of Jesus. That from your weakness and from your poverty, from your lack of righteousness, from all the ways that you've messed it up and can mess it up and will mess it up, that from all of that, we call on the name of Jesus and he bestows his riches, everything that belongs to him. He then bestows upon you. He gives it freely to you. And that this is our standing before God. And so we stand with other human beings. And none has superiority over any of the others. We come freely because it is Jesus who vouches for us. It is Jesus who stands ahead of us. These riches are for everyone who calls. And friends, this is the glorious freedom of the gospel. It's the beauty of the revelation that's working sometimes in what can be a complicated book to us. 
that the end and the purpose, the goal of all of it is Jesus. And the righteousness that he bestows on those who have faith, who believe in their heart that he died on the cross for the weight of our sins and that he was raised and that God is working that great renewal in which he writes all the wrongs and that he frees the creation itself and restores it all to its liberty that was intended. This is the goal, and it's all realized in Jesus. Let's hold to him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the faults of others, and as we consider Israel's hardness from Romans 10 today, it's easy for us not to look at ourselves. Keep us from that mistake. Help us to see the ways that we can be ignorant ourselves and that we can reorient the means of righteousness in subtle ways as we've done so in churches before and that we can also neglect the revelation of your righteousness that's Jesus who's at the center of all of your purposes. And so draw near to us today and grant us to cling to him by faith and to know all the riches that are ours, the immense wealth that you fund us with through him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.